Hey, it's Brian. Welcome to Heart to Heart. In this episode, Mark and I chat with Tiffany Little Canfield, a highly regarded casting director whose keen eye has led her from Broadway to Hollywood. Tiffany has made significant contributions to some of the biggest shows and movies of the past few years, and her behind-the-scenes knowledge is invaluable to actors. This episode is guaranteed to inspire you to take bold steps when navigating your own path to success. Now, before you listen, you've got to grab our backstage pass. It's packed with Tiffany's top tips, insider advice, and additional resources that will give you a competitive edge. You can grab the backstage pass by going to podcastbackstagepass.com. You know, I'm sure someone like you, to get to where you are now, you've had to, you know, be innovative and, and take some bold risks. I definitely have two instances that I think are exactly what you're talking about, and both of them have really led to my career the way it is now. The first was my very first job. I was an assistant on Baz Luhrmann's production of Puccini's La Boheme on Broadway. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as an assistant, your job is to listen and be engaged, but be quiet, kind of almost a fly on the wall. And there was a moment when an actor was auditioning and I could tell that Baz didn't think he was right for the part, but I knew the producers and my boss, Heidi Marshall, really wanted this actor. And there was a moment where Baz Luhrmann turned to me and said, why do you think this actor is funny, Tiffany? And I said, it was a moment where I, do I say what I really believe, which will support him not thinking he's right for the part? Or do I kind of try to say the safest thing possible so that I'm sort of supporting what I know is my producer's point of view? And I used all my drama training, you know, and go, uh, <laughs> Conservatory trained, and I, I basically said, yeah, what I really believed, which was the actor is funny because he's playing a sad sack. And then Baz Luhrmann said, what other character is like that? And I was like, Benoit, which would make him seem. But then I said, but I really think this actor, if we give him the adjustment to play high status, could take that adjustment because he's a great character actor. And he was like, okay, let's get him back in and try. And I really believe that led, that moment of saying what I really believed and why I believed it is why both producers and the director trusted me to take over casting that show eventually. Wow. And uh, that's unbelievable. You, you know, it's funny that I just, as you were saying this, right? So when one-on-one -on -one first opened, I was kind of like a one-man band. And so I got the word out as far as we were renting space. And so Baz Lorman was one of the first people to rent space for his casting of Romeo and Juliet. And I was the cameraman every day. Oh my so God. the reason I'm telling you this long story is for you to work for Baz Luhrmann, he's quite a character. Oh yeah. No, so no, I can no. only imagine working for him because when he would come in and, and you know, every day was a new experience, but I would say Tiffany, and you don't have to agree to this or whatever, but as soon as you said Baz Luhrmann, the first thing that entered my mind, cause I, when I went back to those 30 years ago, I think, for Romeo and Juliet when I was the cameraman. And I, I would compare him to Pee Wee Herman. No, not that he was Pee Wee, but in other words, first of all, he's a brilliant thinker. So just like Pee Wee, he was, you know, not mainstream. He was- He's an innovator, right? Innovator. So for you to have, when he turned to you and said, hey, what do you think of this? That's not an easy thing. That's intimidating. Oh, you know, it was a big moment for me, for sure. It was definitely a big moment. The other thing was opening the Los Angeles office. That did not come because I wanted to leave New York. I love New York. I miss it every day. It was from my family wanting me to move back to Sacramento. And I took a moment to think, oh my gosh, am I going to just 
try to get in, teach at the local college. What am I going to do in Sacramento? And then I, doing research, I hit an article about super commuting to Los Angeles. So I presented that to Bernie and said, what if I have to move home because of my family? And I go down to LA every week and we start an LA office. And he luckily said yes. So I did. And it's been great. That's revolutionary. In other words, do you think that Bernie might not have started that office had it not been for your situation? Yeah, I don't know. I can't predict what would have happened. It had been on, we had brainstormed about it in, in retreats we had done. You know, when you do that as a company and you brainstorm about dreams and things. And it was always there, but I think that no one wanted to go to LA. So it felt like something that we just, and we felt, I think we felt more like we're going to convince people that we can go there for a short period and do the same amount. We don't need to have an office there. I think that's where we were sort of landing because we did do shows that shot in LA and movies that we did casting in LA and that we didn't need to live there. So I think we were thinking that and it felt like a huge risk to me at the time because <laughs> I, I really didn't know if I'd be doing generals for three months to justify my existence and then hopefully get a pilot. And luckily we were luckier than that. And we got a pilot the week before I left New York to start bright and early on Monday. <laughs> Can I ask you, now you're originally from Sacramento, but you spend all that time in New York. What would you say is, in your opinion, just the difference, and we're not even talking necessarily acting, but just the difference in the vibe of New York versus LA? Well, I think there is, it feels more like an acting community in New York because, I mean, you're on an 11 mile island and everyone's in about three miles, you know, working, you know, people live outside of that, but everybody works together. So you're bumping into people, you are at the theater, you know, I think it's a theater going culture. So you're running into actors, other casting directors, agents, producers every night of the week at the theater. That doesn't really happen in Los Angeles. You have to be far more intentional to say, let's meet up. Or there's events that you go to, but it is not the same kind of community. And that's something I've heard from a lot of my friends who are actors is they feel isolated at first. Some people like it. You know, they like that feeling of not being in the hustle and bustle and they get there. Here's where I work. And then here's my life where I live. But I would say that's the biggest difference. And also, you know, let's be honest, when you think of the zeitgeist of what it is to live in New York, you think of a lot of things like open calls, cattle calls, right? Like nobody even calls them that anymore. I don't think anyone even has anything like that anymore, but that's what they call it. High rent, freezing cold, subway, rats, cockroaches, right? And then of course, theater. People living on top of each other, yeah. Correct. So there's a lot of fear, I think, around what it would be like to have a life in New York City, where in LA, we think of things like movie stars and yoga and juice and the beach, and it's always beautiful weather. So there's a little bit in the zeitgeist of, I think a certain kind of person moves to LA and a certain kind of person moves to New York. There's always the exceptions to the rule, but just in general. And I'm so curious too, just to piggyback off of that, like in your day-to-day, like, you know, casting, dealing with production, dealing with writers and stuff and network, do you notice a difference between kind of the industry that's in New York versus the industry that's in LA? Because 
I started my position kind of maybe around the same time you had moved here, I, I think. And I remember that people were, a lot of people were really commenting that they really liked you and, you know, tell CLA because of that New York vibe, which kind of really matched us because we also had a New York, one-on-one had a New York vibe that we brought to, you know, LA and Next Level. I don't know about that because I can't speak, you know, I didn't hear that, but we have much more proximity to it. So people who used to just be a voice on the phone, Right. Like we used to never go to a, you know, concept meetings or any kinds of those meetings they have all of the time. We would never go to the table read. We would never go to, we'd cast it and then, and you'd have phone calls you'd be on, but it'd be a conference call with 20 people and you're just really never have any idea who's talking or whose job is what. So it felt very removed from like, especially the world of the studio executives and the development executives and all of that. It was really just your team and you. Where here you are actually, I mean, pre-pandemic, of course, actually invited to go to things in person and you're getting FaceTime, you're seeing who's speaking, you're getting to feel the energy. So I feel like I've gotten to learn a lot about how the making of film and television happens because I finally am in the room where it happens as opposed to in New York where you're creating some cool stuff, but you don't have proximity to that part of the process. Hey, it's Brian. I'm dropping in on an important announcement. What you need to know is you have more control over your career than you think. The thing standing between you and the career you want is your connections. And that's where one-on-one next level comes in. If you are not a member yet, you can apply to join at oneononenextlevel.com. Press pause and do that now. If you are already a member and you are ready to get back on track, we want to invite you to book a strategy session with us led by myself personally. We will help you prioritize which classes make the most sense given your career goals. You can find these under the resource hub in your account portal. We can't wait to hear your success story. You know, it's interesting because last night there was a panel of uh, agents and managers and they were saying about Los Angeles now. And they were speaking on behalf, because some of the uh, actors were like, how have you seen a difference in casting? And they were asking their opinion, you know, during the pandemic. So they were saying that during the pandemic, they feel that actors who have the opportunity to audition for some television and film roles here in L.A. are now able to be considered who don't necessarily live here because the casting directors are casting from their homes as opposed to from their Offices. Do you think that's true, or would you say not? Wait, I'm not. I think I'm not following the point. They think that it's easier if an actor doesn't live in LA it, it, to be considered for a certain role in LA, shot in LA. Well, they have to lie to us, you know, because it's against SAG rules to ask someone to be a local hire if they don't live here. So, you know what it is? I can't tell if they live here or not. Gotcha. Because I'm getting a tape. They're not coming into the room. So. I find that the budgeting is not different. They still only have the budget to travel out of town actors in if they're kind of a name or like a very established actor. Otherwise, they're saying we live in L.A. Why would we pay travel for somebody who doesn't live here? Right. Just for someone who read into the role. If it's like a particular actor they want, then they find the budget. But if it's like, oh, we read actors they are going to choose one of the ones who live in L.A. And if the actor doesn't live in L.A. and they're willing to pay the price to be here during that shoot, that's okay? I have no way to control that. Yeah. And what would you say, Tiffany, is what you've noticed for you has been a major change for the pandemic, during the pandemic? 
Oh, I mean, there's a positive and a negative to it. I would say that one of the positives, I think, is that we have had a social justice movement in addition to the pandemic. At the same time of the pandemic, we had a social justice movement, right? And everyone participated. It was, you know, one of the most participated protests in American history and the most diverse. Yes. The most diverse. And so I feel like, especially for people who are in the arts worlds, we saw something really change. And I feel like the visibility of these issues became really, really apparent. And so I think a lot of people use the time from when the pandemic slowed things down to do DEI work that was very necessary. So in that sense, I would say talking about actors in a different way, making sure that you're being inclusive in your casting process, questioning perhaps roles that might feel stereotypical or kind of tokenizing and and talking about how can we make it better is a very, very active conversation now. So that I think is fantastic. Also with self-tapes, you then can be more inclusive. Someone can work a day job and do their auditions at night. Someone could live slightly far out of the city, you know, be able to still be a local hire, but like live outside of the major LA metropolitan area and can still participate in the business on equal level as the person who lives in West Hollywood, right? So that is a big change. The negative, I'd say, is we still haven't gone back in television to in-person auditions. And, you know, many of us, in order to survive the pandemic, gave up our space. So we don't have a space now. And so working remotely, I think, as an artist, someone who entered the theater training because I've always wanted to be part of an ensemble and, you know, work in ensemble and collaboration with other artists. That part, though we've found ways around it, I'm really ready for that stuff to come back. And maybe a hybrid. Maybe we could do a hybrid so we can get the best of both situations. And I know just from what you say in your classes that like a big part of like what you enjoy in the process is you like to read. You like to connect and see if, you know, like read with the actors, see if they're connecting, see what's going on yourself. Is that something that you feel like is, has been missing in the process now? Honestly, I think you can kind of still do that on Zoom. Like, because I do read with the actors on Zoom as well. You know, when we do a Zoom session, I feel like I am getting that listening, unless the tech is just so bad that it, you know, but then it's not really a usable audition and we end up having to ask the person to self-tape anyway. So at least we got to communicate some, but the situation is what it is. But I do miss it. I think that Zoom auditions are more rare than self-tapes because self-tapes are more efficient. And a lot of people don't, again, when you do a Zoom audition, you really are expecting the actor to provide the strong enough internet connection in order to have the Zoom work, right? And that is a level of privilege. That's a level where, so some actors may prefer a self-tape because they have control over the quality of it how it looks actually. And so, I mean, we try to be really open to what people want to do, but I feel like I still connect, but I want more. I want also connection with my own staff and team, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. even though there's been a positive of getting to collaborate with New York office because of zoom. It's like, again, with there's pluses and minuses to probably every issue. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And it seems like, you know, do you think, you know, next year or something that there might be a change with that where you guys might be, you know, back in the office more often? I hope so. I really hope so. I think without television auditions being approved to be in person, though, it's going to be difficult to justify the because nobody right now is paying for space. Right. So 
who's going to pay for it? The studio, the studio's gotten really used to not paying for it because the studio used to give us space or would give us money towards space. Mm. And I'm kind of curious to see what has happened with that sort of thing now and what will happen. Hopefully we can go back because it is, again, it's better. It's so funny because you talk to actors and some actors are so over self-taping. And there's also some belief that casting directors don't watch the self-tapes. I don't know where that's coming from. I feel like that's, I always say, different tech, same issue. I think it's the same kind of feeling actors felt going to EPAs. No one's really seeing me. It's not the main person. You know, we've all heard those feelings of not feeling seen, right, in the audition process. And so I'm sure the worst is you put work into a self-tape and then no one watched it because you don't hear anything. We watch all our (laughs) self-tapes. So I don't know why on earth. The only self-tapes I could imagine not watching are unrequested. You know, like if we get a bunch of random ones that are not actors that we have sent an audition to. And even then, I feel like we watch it. But. Right. I'm fascinated with those things in life that we can't touch or feel. For instance, you know, there, there are those actors who really want to come into the room and be able to show themselves off besides the audition, right? You know, like come in and, and at least show their personality. And then there are those actors who, who are so happy to not have to do that. So it's just interesting. It is interesting. And we've been hearing a lot about the feeling that you're just sending tapes into the ether and you used to get feedback. And I'm, I'd say, I actually don't think you used to get any feedback, but (laughs) you know, and and we kind of were joking about, we're like the callback or getting pinned is the feedback. Right. right? Yeah, no, exactly. Yeah. He used to be, thank you. Good afternoon. (laughs) No, exactly. Like we're all, we're all trying to create a warm environment. So I wouldn't necessarily say that someone who's walked out of my audition room got feedback. Right. I think yeah, we collaborated yeah, yeah. on the audition and, and they don't, I, I suspect they would not know how it went in terms of getting cast. They would know if it was like awkward or like we, you know, those kinds of things. But in terms of feedback towards getting cast, I don't know that they got it. I think people try to glean. And so I guess I actually think that's a very dangerous thing, which, you know, Brian, I teach. I think if you're focused on how do we think this is going, you're probably not that connected to the scene work. Right. But I think that must be somewhat satisfying. But on the other side, how many people are getting opportunities because you're not limited to space and appointment time mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's with self Yeah. So would you prefer to have more audition, you know, I'm kind of curious to see because I know before the pandemic, there would always be a lot of question about access. I never get seen by this office. Oh, I've never met this cast. I've never gotten an appointment there. So I'm a little like, I don't know. It's funny because I think along the lines of what you had heard, the only, I I try to, you know, stay away from any of that stuff, but the only thing I hear is some people go, oh, I have too many self-tapes, I have too many auditions. And I kind of chuckle because I was like, I just remember like two or three years ago, it used to be, I'm not getting enough appointments. I only get one appointment every month. And now it's like, I have too many. You know, I think it's always difficult and it is always feast or famine, isn't it? I mean, it is, it's a difficult art form. It's a difficult for everybody. It looks like on, I mean, I think if we read deadline, we can see it's difficult on every level. There's so much change. It's really complicated, but I think it's, I don't know that we're now we're getting into deep philosophy about, no, this is what it's about. Yeah, Yeah. About the situation of which is better. I think there's always going to be a grass is always greener. I think even if you're booking, there's going to be the grass is greener where, oh, my roommate went for the lead and I'm only reading for the guest. You know, like there's just, I think there's part of a natural 
drive that is often in artists, which you're never satisfied, right? It's the Hamilton thing, you know, you're never going to be satisfied. An art, I don't think an artist ever really does get satisfied. And we do tend to look at others' careers all the time and compare ourselves, even though there's really no one journey of being an artist. No one, there's no formula for success. There's no, you know, one path. Everyone has a different path, but it's when you're in it, it's difficult to try to step out and have that perspective. Yeah. And, you know, as you were talking, I was saying to myself, the situation we're dealt with is where we are. So it doesn't matter about being hypothetical because this is what we're dealing with right now, as far as the on tape audition. Yeah. It's, we're lucky that film and television was able to come back with the use of this technology. I think for a lot of actors, film and television saved them through the pandemic when theater was absolutely shut down. Here's something I never had a chance to tell you. Okay, so a long time ago, I read this article in the New York Times about Bonnie Timmerman, and she was talking about how she could see someone in the room, like let's just say at a party, and just get a sense of who they are. And then I used to get feedback from actors about your first class and that your first class, you pretty much go through their headshots and it's not about any kind of work except, you know, really you getting to know them, each person in the class. Do you feel that ability to, you know, take someone in, in that class, in person, you can still do something similar when you're having a class online with your first class, getting to know them? Absolutely. It's like when people say reality television, right? Like, oh, it's not real. Yeah, it's not real, but they said it. The camera was just rolling and these aren't even actors. So they said it. You're seeing something here. It could be edited or whatever. And this is unedited. So as much as you can get a sense of me right now and you see my room, you almost get a little bit more sometimes because you're seeing (laughs) into the person's room in life, which you normally would never get in a studio somewhere. I definitely could get a feeling. I think if you show up, I get it. You know, I think some people are uncomfortable with technology and some people are uncomfortable in the room being shy. In fact, I remember, Brian, you were encouraging me to do cold reads the first week because they were like, you're just going to talk about the industry. That seems uh, weird. (laughs) And I'm like, right. But all cold reading does is tell me who's good at cold reading and people who have dyslexia or don't feel strong are like set up to fail because you can't prepare. What are you learning? I never use cold reading in my auditions ever. So what use is that? And what am I going to do? Say a magic word and suddenly you can read. (laughs) I mean, you're an adult. (laughs) There's nothing I'm going to do. That's going to make you a good cold reader. Cause let me tell you, you know, who's a good cold reader me. And I know why it is. It's how my brain works. I was good when I was a kid. I was good. Now my brain enjoys turning that code into language, into ideas, into thoughts very quickly. That's why I'm good at cold reading. But that doesn't have anything to do with acting. One of the best actors I know, uh, someone who is a, a muse to me, is so dyslexic, she really, really struggles. Probably until like the third day of rehearsal, really. Like she's really working on impulse, which can actually be really interesting. But she's not text first because that part takes her longer but she's so fearless as a performer she throws herself into the character right away and starts doing stuff on an instinct basis as opposed to textually support it and it's fascinating but that's not going to happen in a cold read class Mm -hmm. right (laughs) 
I remember all the initial conversations we had, <laughs> but I will say it's like, there's something, you know, we, we host many, many classes here when we have wonderful, wonderful casting director teachers. And, but, you know, you know, this, that, you know, not just from what I've told you, but you truly have such a, like a gift in the room in terms of your ability to not just lead a class, but just like your insight on acting, on scene work, on auditions. Do you think a lot of that is from your training at, you know, North Carolina School of the Arts that separates you a little bit? Yeah, honestly, I think it comes from being an actor in an acting training program, whether that was the Magnet High School program that I went to, which actually, when I look back, I'm like, we were getting pretty good training there, actually. You know, that was definitely a foundation. And then I had the, I took a couple of years and did just really community theater, right? Like did community theater and took academic classes at the junior college. And I think I learned there like another group of people in view, how did people behave? And then I went to PCPA, which is an acting training program for two years. It's a professional training program and you get to be in professional shows while you're there as a student. And again, I saw another you get to, I just feel like maybe you just have been around it. You've seen what the different, you're hearing the same kind of teaching from different teachers, different points of view. So you've got, I think I really had the opportunity to pick and choose what worked for me because I did a couple different routes. And then of course, the North Carolina School of the Arts with a directing degree, I got a whole different perspective, but still in the room with actors doing scene work, even as a director, you have to do scene work there. And then directing scenes, I think it just gave me a unique perspective. Right. Because I'm sure, as you know, it's like not all casting directors come from a art, necessarily even an artistic background. You know, one might say some might come from a more, and it it really shows up sometimes when, you know, sometimes they're in a class setting with our actors, you, you see a difference. Well, that's the thing. There is no journey or pipeline specifically to being in casting either, less than being an actor. Right. And I think that all different points of view are worthy, really worthy and listening, you know, and, and I've, I'm lucky at Telsey, we have such different, we're sort of like a commune of casting directors, right? So we, even within our own company, there's different points of views and ways in which people do it. And I always find it, it's one of the pluses of working there is getting to see talent through different points of view, you know, and I might have my strong opinions, but everyone that is there has a valid point of view. And it's kind of, I, I think it helps us keep learning, which is so important to remain an artist. I think once you've decided you know it, you know the score, you're kind of on your way out mm-hmm. Yeah, as an artist because it's changing. Right. <laughs> right. And you guys are so collaborative. Like even within your LA office, I would say it's like the personalities are sometimes it seems like, wow, they, they're in an office together. They're very opposite personalities. Yeah. Again, it's, I think a, a chance to kind of learn from different people and different and a different perspectives. Again, you know, we're a culture and an art form that reflects the culture that is all ages and all ethnicities and all different kinds of backgrounds. And, and so to me, the fact that our office kind of can represent that and those different voices and not be just kind of the same voices all the time that you're hearing is I think a, a real plus. Hey folks, Brian here. Mark and I often cringe when people call one-on-one next level a workshop studio because we are so much more than that. You and I both know that not all workshop studios are the same. And I can tell you with complete confidence that no other studio offers the same level of care or programming that we do. And we do so with pride. 
Here's just a few examples. I'm Emily, and before one-on-one -on -one Next Level, I was in a super dark place in my career. I tried a lot of things to find representation, but nothing seemed to work, and I felt invisible. Then, almost as a Hail Mary, I signed up for a manager session. It was incredible, but it was also the thing to land me a manager. Since then, I booked a national commercial, I've gone on to create a thriving voiceover career and signed with an agent, all through these classes and programs. One-on-one -on -one Next Level has been the single most important thing that's influenced my acting career and life in so many ways. I'm Neil. In the last year, I booked two co-stars and one top-of-show guest star on major TV series. I also shot my first lead in a feature film. In fact, I've hit 20 big milestones thanks to the connections that I've made in classes at one-on-one -on -one Next Level. The key has been getting in front of casting directors. And that's why I love one-on-one -on -one Next Level. If you're not a member yet, what are you waiting for? Every actor deserves face time with the people in the business who can move your career forward. And one-on-one -on -one Next Level can help you do that. Did you know one-on-one -on -one Next Level produces over 335 events and classes each month? Whether you join us in person or attend on Zoom, you can meet with A-list casting directors, filmmakers, TV showrunners, and executive producers, as well as agents and managers when you become a member. These days, it's harder and harder to get real face time with industry pros, but one-on-one -on -one Next Level makes it possible. To become a member, visit www.oneononenextlevel.com and click join. We can't wait to hear your success story. You ever get a, a feeling inside when something special comes along? Like, for instance, in television, I was on the way here. I was thinking of some things that really like uh, changed television. For instance, Mash, Twin Peaks, when that came out, Hill Street Blues. People were talking about it, the water cooler, and you know, there, there's certain shows that just I feel like changed the face of America. No different than like stores like Starbucks, Costco, Trader Joe's. They really changed how people mm -hmm. shop. So, for instance. You get a show like This Is Us. I feel that show is like a one of those shows that really did have a major effect on America. I agree that the reaction of America to the show was so exciting because I felt like they really got it. So I feel like it's more like almost the Sally Field instead of being like, oh, we're making a show that's going to change America. It was like, we're making the best show we can make. And then it's like, you like us. You really like us. Like how ex I felt like it was a true exchange of love because honestly, Dan Fogelman is like so heart forward and Isaac and Elizabeth are so heart forward. And I feel like me and Josh and Ryan are so heart forward. And Steve Beers, the executive producer, again, these are people who, and Ken Olin, oh my gosh, you know, like very heart forward people. So I feel like we were making a show that we loved, you know, and I think we found the right actors. And part of that, I always say this when people are like, how did that cast come together? Everyone auditioned and everyone chemistry read. Mm. So, and that is so rare these days in television. It is so, it's the maybe the only television show that I've worked on. No, Smash, everybody read. We didn't get chemistry reads, though, because it was New York. So a lot of this, you know, people were not in New York at the time. But yeah, no, it was a really special process, I think. And I think it shows how important the process is. So when you get something like that and you're part of it, and I'm sure even if you thought it was going to be well-received, you probably didn't even know at the beginning how well-received it would be. That must be like, that must put a little extra oomph in your step, being part of something like that. It was definitely wonderful to have at the start of my L.A. career. I would say it really helped us establish that we were here, you know, that I'm here in L.A. So I think that was 
a wonderful gift, you know, and I have to shout out the people who brought the gift to me, which is Glenn Ficara and John Requa, who are directed the pilot. I'd done f- their films and they were the ones who invited me to meet Dan and, and be up for the job. So that was really, really, really exciting. Uh, and I'm so eternally thankful to them and love working. They are just clever and funny and the greatest and also very, very, very heart forward folks. They're the kind of people you meet and you think, oh, these are like my two best friends from high school. Like I know exactly who they are. You know, like you just really feel like you know them right away. No, I felt good about it for sure. But I also felt good about shows that people didn't see. I mean, I can't lie. Two of my favorite shows are I'm Dying Up Here and Penny Dreadful City of Angels. I think both of those casts are fantastic. And I think the shows are top notch, but it's hard to break through. So it's very hard these days to break through, to find your audience, because there's so much content. So in your opinion, why, why does a certain show break through and like a show that you believed in? There's no, is there any, anything you've ever thought about? Not something I would say on a podcast that's going to be. Yeah, fun. yeah. Because isn't it interesting how like certain things, like even a restaurant, Tiffany, you know, the restaurant could have everything going for themselves. They're going to open up. And on the first night, they don't get an audience. And usually that restaurant then shuts down immediately. And you don't know why, because it had everything going for it. Yeah, no, I, I certainly have felt like, I mean, the good thing is for me, and one thing I think I love about casting is the work I do is kind of pre-production. And so I work, I always say I work in such a positive space where everyone knows the show's going to be successful. Like, right? Like we're not, in as much as you could operate in a place of fear, it doesn't feel like you are. You are trying to make the best show you can. It's very positive. So I'm lucky in that I don't really experience, you know, like I don't know that I feel as connected to the part of the process when the the show is actually airing, (laughs) Mm -hmm. right? Like often I'm kind of on to something else at that point. That's not my, I mean, I know in episodic television, I'm still casting it. I don't know. I think I just separate it. And especially now with peak television, uh-huh. I think we're so lucky to get eyes on shows. It's everyone's trying to figure out what the formula is. And I think there isn't a formula. Like really, I don't, you know, there's artists in the marketing department as much as there's artists on screen. I also wonder if it's because you, you know, compared to some others, like you work on so many projects at once, you know? And so it's almost like you don't, you don't have the time to, you know, cling on to that one show. Or as some people, maybe that like one procedural is like, you know, what they do five days a week. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I definitely love my shows and don't want them. Like, I feel very, like, I got a, had a pilot not get picked up this year that I'm devastated. Mm. I'm still angry about it. <laughs> because, <laughs> honestly, because, but you know what? I get still get to say I cast one of my favorite actors who is maybe not the type of person you see as number one on the call sheet on a ABC network series, I still cast her in it. You know, I still got her approved, got it done. She shot it. Like, so there's still things I get to take away that were bucket list for me, even though I was super bummed. Marsha Stephanie Blake. You guys know Stephanie Blake. She's a genius, absolute genius. She's been nominated for Emmys, Brian. So, you know, maybe Uh, I got to brush up on that. (laughs) She's She's just a brilliant, brilliant actor. And, I am so proud and happy I got to cast her in that part. And there's other people too who were cast in that, that I 
like really love and care about. So I feel good we got that done, although I'm still super bummed they didn't see, you know, a place for it on their schedule. But I don't know how that part gets done, so I can't take it personally. What are some of the the things that you love about what you do the most, like, you know, without thinking too much, like that you love? I love seeing the success of people who you meet when they're just starting out. I mean, that's, I think every casting director loves that to see people. Oh, remember that person was a co-star or day player on Sex and City One and they just won their third Tony award, you know, that kind of thing. That's always really fun. And, and I think the other thing is developing and working in collaboration with amazing artists. I mean, I've gotten to work with Baz Luhrmann, as obviously. Julie Taymor is one of my favorites mm, of wow. all time. I had the deep, deep honor, and I thank Mark Platt all the time, wow. to work with Jonathan Demi before he passed away. I mean, and, and there's so many more like that I feel just how did I get to work with this person? And I feel that very much recently because we, you know, it's in post now, but working with Blitz Bazawule on the Color Purple musical film. You know, this guy is a published author. He is a professional painter. He's more known in the music world as Blitzy Ambassador. He's a very successful musician and filmmaker. <laughs> like, to work with someone like him, it's been, I mean, it's just been incredible to see. I can't wait to see the movie, to see his imagination, because I know what kind of stuff's in there. I have to ask then the opposite, just because we, I think throughout our podcast, we've had, you know, we've had reps, we've had showrunners and, you know, people. And I think it's sometimes helpful for our listeners because I think a majority of our listeners are actors. And sometimes, you know, they think, oh, like, you know, I, I have such a difficult journey. But I think it's helpful for them to also realize that other people in the industry, maybe people that they seemed like, oh, they're the gatekeepers or, oh, they, they have, you know, more power than me. They also, in their day to day, have the same things. And I think that alleviates when sometimes they have a, an interaction with maybe an agent or a manager. It's like, oh, they're having a bad day because they also have bad days and struggles in their journey. So like, what are things you know in your day-to-day casting life that maybe are difficult and that you, you don't look forward to? It's hard to release people when they're up for something you know that they really want and it doesn't go their way. And that's probably the hardest because then they're really looking for a reason you know, because they want to learn from the experience, like, what did I do wrong? And so often, if they're at that level where they're being like, really, they didn't do anything wrong. It's just that one person gets the part. So it's nothing. And I always hope and hope and hope, and I try to give feedback this way that they realize how excellent they were so that they don't doubt themselves after a situation like that, because they really shouldn't. And I always joke that, like, we'd want to do revenge casting, which <laughs> if it doesn't work out for someone, but we, like, love them. The next project that they're right for, I'm, like, doubly, you know, really, really invested. And I've I've had quite a few revenge castings in my mind where I think um, I love, you know, Ali'i Cravalho is one of my favorite young actors. And she's the voice of Moana, if you know her. But she had auditioned for something and people just didn't see her in the role and me and the director were like, how can they not see it? And then we literally cast her as the lead of his next movie. I think I've seen that before too. I've heard you like mention like in cl- in your classes, some like actors who maybe didn't. And then I, maybe I was like watching a show. Maybe I, was, I think it was Rise or something. I was like, wait, that's the actor that Tiffany, you know, talked about in class and you know, she got him in. Yeah. Oh yeah. I do. I love her. Well, that was the first time I ever cast her. I love her so much. Oh my gosh. I remember that. I did a general with her because she was in town for the Oscars to perform the Moana song for the Oscars. 
and I was working on what was called Drama High at the time, but Rise. And I was like, what are you kind of interested in? She was like, well, I read this script. And I was like, you're interested in TV? Because you're not sure if she's going to be interested (laughs) in that kind of a thing when she's just come from a movie. And she's like, yeah. And I was like, how long are you here? Can you come tomorrow night? (laughs) It was, it happened very quickly because she's, she's so tremendous. I'm sorry, but she's just a, and a great human being. Like talk about meeting someone in the room and you're just like, and just selfishly, I feel like my taste doesn't match with like America's taste, but like, I love that show. Like I was so bummed when, you know, got canceled. And the other show I was bummed was uh, love Victor. Oh, I think the shows that I like just for some reason, you know, <laughs> well, Victor got a couple seasons though. I mean, we two, have- right. It was two. You should have gotten more. Why do we think? Yeah. It all blends together. Yeah. No, yeah, I so love, love Victor. I was listening to this guy on a podcast, Rick Rubin. He He's a producer of music. And he, he actually would go to Negril when it was on 14th Street and listen to hip hop when it first came out. And he said, you know, the true hip hop artist, they were just doing it, something that they felt the music. They weren't trying to be anybody else. They were just creating something brand new. And he was talking about then artists across the board, musicians, actors. And he said, the true artist isn't trying to copy someone. They're taking something that from within and they're just really, you know, making it their own. Can you tell, and it's really interesting that, you know, when, when that thing happens where, whether it's, let's just say someone in an audition, when they're really coming in being so genuine, they're making it their own versus trying to, to be what they think that you want them to be. Yeah, well, that's one of the biggest differences, I'd say, between someone who is booking auditions all the time versus someone who's frustrated is letting go of that feeling of what are they looking for? Because let's be honest, they often don't know. Or do you know what they want? They want Jennifer Lawrence. But guess what? They can't have Jennifer Lawrence. So what's next, right? They don't there's qualities to what they want, but it's waiting for the artist to come up and turn that two-dimensional page into a person. And so I always try to say to actors, what do you think is good? And that's something I experienced. When I was a young acting student, I had really low self-esteem about walking into the room and booking something because of how I looked. I really was plain, you know, honestly, and it's fine. You know, but like I being in my early 20s or even 19 to 25... I'm not tall. I'm not short. I'm not thin. I'm not fat. I'm not fair. I'm not dark. Like I am really regular looking, you know, and with ironic last name of little. So I knew I'm not walking in to be, there's my Juliet. There's my Emily in our town. So I used to think to myself, I'm going to do what I think is good because this is my chance to play the part. So I'm just going to do, and my goal was not to book it, but it was to make them consider me or make them steal from me. That my choices were so interesting and effective that they would maybe not cast me, but I'd go on opening night and see that choice. And that was what my goal was. It wasn't even to book because I knew that's out of my control. I can't control whether I book it. I can only control whether I give a good audition that I am happy with. So equally to like your technique is developing your own taste, Mm. right? Your own taste. Because I'm looking for collaborators, not a puppet who's going to say it how I want them to say it and just do. If I'm having to cast someone that I give a line reading to or it's because they have such an extreme look or type that I need that person, right? Like you can't act like you're a professional wrestler. You need to look 
way. <laughs> your, your own taste and your own take. Exactly. But your taste will lead to your take. Your yeah. taste will be like, this is interesting. This is basic. This is what it says on the surface, but I think there's something interesting here. This line leads here. You know, like it's really, it's also, you have to have confidence in yourself and your scene work. That I had high confidence. It was my look that I was like, I'm not walking in and booking anything, but I have high confidence in my scene work. And so I'm going to work on this until I'm excited about it. And then I'll go in and do what I want. And sometimes, let's be honest, you don't really know if you want that job or if, you know, (laughs) that stuff, right? You don't know. So go in and sometimes you don't do what you want to do in your audition. So you leave and that's a great, that you don't need feedback for that. You should be able to know that was not what I wanted to do. That is not in reaction to the casting director's point of view. That's not from how they treated you. That's your knowledge, what I wanted to do in the audition and walking out and going, I wasn't present. I didn't do it. I didn't take the swing the way I hoped I did. That's why I'm always surprised actors want feedback so much. Cause I'm like, can't, you give your, don't you know? Right. That's so powerful. If there's anything people take away from this episode, it's what you just said. I'm yeah. going to end this with Tiffany with like, you know, there's an actor that has to do with what you said is he said, you know, he replaces the word audition, right? Because audition brings up so many things. He says, he always says he doesn't have an audition. He has an opportunity. So he just says, Hey, on Tuesday, I have another opportunity. And it really changes the mindset. No, I agree. I think you got to look at it more as not that you're being judged, but you're coming in to collaborate. Right. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't done it yet, grab the Backstage Pass because there's behind the scenes footage, we've taken the biggest takeaways from the episode and written them down for you. And there's also tools and resources to help move your career forward. It's the easiest way to turn this podcast into a tool for your career as opposed to something you just listen to as you're doing the dishes. 